Black Doctors Podcast, Season 6. As a high-risk OB doctor, I have held patients crying after a diagnosis of fetal anomaly or discussing how this pregnancy could kill them. This decision not only puts limitations on my ability as a doctor, but worse for my patients looking for options. That is the voice of Dr. D'Angela Pitts. She is an obstetrician, gynecologist, and maternal fetal medicine specialist. Stay tuned through the end of today's episode to hear the rest of her thoughts on this heartbreaking decision by the Supreme Court. Welcome back to Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Stephen, your host. This episode is sponsored by Michael Johnson Legal. He is a lawyer specialized in physician contracts. We spent over an hour talking about the common mistakes physicians make when applying for their first jobs and how we can avoid those mistakes. Note this conversation does not constitute legal advice. We definitely appreciate Michael supporting our goal and vision here at the Black Doctors Podcast and providing information that will improve all of our lives as physicians and future physicians. We will be donating a portion of the proceeds from today's show to a charity of your choice. To recommend a charity, please visit our Instagram page, The Black Doctors Podcast, and drop us a message. I apologize for the audio quality. I'm actually recording this voiceover in the car as my wife and I move uh, to Chicago. I finished up four years of service and active duty in the Navy this past weekend, and we're moving to Chicago so I can start fellowship. But now back to the show and a quick word from our sponsor, Picmonic, before we jump in today's episode. This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. Hello, welcome back to Black Doctors Podcast. I'm Steven, your host. This is another sponsored episode. So it's sponsored by Michael Johnson, who is a lawyer. He actually reached out. Um, we had some great conversations and he has a special interest or specialty in position contracts, something that we'll all have to deal with at some point in our career. He has a lot of uh, content on social media and blog posts where he's really trying to educate physicians and, and help us out. He does have a vested interest because uh, your, your wife is a physician. So, um, but we thank you for your service. Thank you for, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. And uh, per usual, we're all about giving back. So with the uh, funds that you, your company provides to the show, we will be donating a portion of that to a charity to be determined if you want to vote on which charity that we we donate to, visit us on social media. You can send us a DM or I'll put a little like Instagram story with a question box and you can kind of say, hey, I want this to go to this charity or another. And then uh, my, co- my co-host and myself will, will pick uh, one of those charities, a little way to get uh, you involved and we can uh, help give back and, and help everybody else out. We could all use a little help these days. And now for for Mr. Johnson or Mike Michael Mike, uh, Michael usually go by Michael. All right, Michael. So Michael, you 
are from Alabama. You attended, well, before you attended college, you were a professional tennis player. Yeah, I played the low levels of professional tennis. I was very like field of dreams in tennis. I played the international (laughs) uh, junior circuit. So I got to play um, Wimbledon and French Open and US Open, Australian Open, all the Grand Slams and juniors. Tried to turn pro. Uh, tried to do that for a few years, uh, didn't make any money at it, and then uh, went back to college. Okay. And you attended Auburn University, Montgomery. Correct. There's a branch University of Auburn in Montgomery, Alabama. Very few people know about it. But uh, they had, during my time, they had the best NAIA tennis program uh, in the country. And we had a really awesome team. I had a really cool time there. Um, it was a really special time to be at Auburn Montgomery, a smaller school. Went to business school there, studied okay. econ, uh, and had a really cool um, team around me for teammates and coaches. It was really, uh, really meaningful. Yeah. When did you decide to go to law school? Uh, I met some lawyers while I was at Auburn Montgomery. I uh, don't know any lawyers, the first lawyer in the family. Um, I don't know if I hardly know any lawyers before I went to Auburn Montgomery, but I met a couple that really had a big impact on me. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do when I went to law school, but I figured out that I really wanted to go. Uh, I also graduated undergrad in 2010 and I had an econ major and like there was not a single finance job (laughs) available. So that made it a lot easier, like ah, stay in school, coach some tennis, go to law school. Uh, better than trying to fight through the finance world at that moment. So, so yeah, so that's what I did. I went to uh, Tulane. I, I coached the women's tennis team as the assistant coach for a year and started a master's in econ. Uh, but after one year, I decided to go ahead and go to law school. Uh, still helped out with the tennis team in a volunteer capacity, but went to Tulane for law school. And you met your wife at some point in time in Louisiana, I assume? Yeah, so went to law school, graduated, started practicing law, um, and I met my wife in 2016. It was one week before match, and she had, I I forget which one she ranked first and second, but it was like between New Orleans and Milwaukee, coming back to Milwaukee. So we had met, and we had known each other for about a week, week and a half, gone on a few dates, but I was like really excited about this girl, but I was very hopeful that she matched in New Orleans, so... (laughs) Uh, we worked out for us, uh, and, and we've been, um, I've been very fortunate ever since. So 2016, we met, she just started her residency, obviously right after that. I started meeting a bunch of physicians yeah. uh, and seeing what they were going through. I saw my wife, um, start looking at moonlighting, little moonlighting gigs during residency, uh, started working on those contracts with her and, and really started an interest in physician contract law through through those experiences. Yeah, that's fantastic. And what percentage of your practice is uh, physician contracting at this point? So probably about half of my work is for physicians evaluating, negotiating, and enforcing their contracts. The other half is for uh, small business law, just small business, general counsel. Sometimes those are also physicians that own small businesses. Um, I also uh, litigate for small businesses, but uh, physician contracts is growing and it might end up being the majority of my practice. It might uh, kind of consume all of my time. But, but at heart, I'm a, I'm a business lawyer, a business litigator that has a special interest in physician contract law. Uh, and I want to help physicians with their contracts. And uh, before we get too far into this, the name of your practice is Michael Johnson Legal. And that's the website as well, michaeljohnsonlegal.com. 
we will have links uh, in the show notes so you can go directly there. Um, and you do consultations, I assume. I do. And today I bought uh, physiciancontracts.com. So I'm hoping that by the time that this airs, I'll like this will be <laughs> a fire under me to, to get it all linked up and get it looking even sharper. But I, I, I do. So if you go to my website, michaeljohnsonlegal.com, you'll see uh, schedule and appointment links. Uh, give me a little bit of information. Send me uh, an appointment request through that website. It's the best way to get a hold of me. I also have a lot of blogs, and I try to produce a lot of information, like you said, on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is Physician Contracts. Big surprise. So I try to uh, try to help out as much as I can. That's dope. Yeah, we'll hold you to that because if you visit the website, we're going to put the the new link. It better not be blank. <laughs> better get moving. Oh man, that's so cool! You're doing a lot. And then um, I know we're getting to the content of the show, but I, I saw recently you visited a residency program and talked to them about contracts. This is a lot of fun. I love talking to residents about contracts. Uh, my wife went to LSU for her residency. Um, so we went back, we were down visiting New Orleans anyways, and we went back, uh, and, uh, I gave, uh, a lunch and learn talk to okay. LSU psychiatry residency program is really great because it gives me an opportunity to talk to them in, in more of an informal setting for an extended period and really kind of gauge where they're at in their knowledge based on contracts. Um, and unfortunately residency programs almost provide zero information about physician contracts. There's really a yeah. gap there. Um, you know, for example, I was talking about some basic, uh, benefits like 401ks, 457s and PTO and, and all these things. And I saw, uh, some, some eyes glaze over, you know, and, and it, it's really helpful when I do that so that I can, uh, more finely tailor, uh, what we talk about. Um, during my consultations and when I'm helping out physicians. But uh, it's just really exciting to see a bunch of residents getting ready to enter the, the job market and learning what's available, what's out there for them, and how to get a better deal. Well, that's great. It's out there. Um, he's available. If you, your program, you know, hit him up at his new website. And uh, obviously, happy to help you guys out with decisions. We're talking briefly before we started because you mentioned, um, you know, it's it's June, people are transitioning into and out of residency, starting their attending jobs. You talked about how, which is the trap that I'm, I would have ended up in if I hadn't met you. You find a great job, you evaluate a couple options, and you're kind of down to the wire with one, and then you get a contract to evaluate. I think that happens to so many people. Can you talk about that general progression and how we shouldn't do that? Right. So I see physicians uh, looking for their first contract um, make a couple uh, mistakes early on. First, they uh, kind of narrow in their target on one employer way too early. It's much more helpful for me and for you if you have multiple offers, multiple viable options all coming in at the same time. We can use those options uh, to negotiate against each other and really hone in on what's the best deal for you. The best deal for one physician might be might not be the best deal for somebody else. Uh, all of these jobs, um, they're not the same. I see a lot of residents maybe with the kind of the idea that there's no reason to negotiate. There's no reason to look further because all jobs are kind of the same. That's wrong. They vary quite a bit. 
you're not going to really know or understand that unless you look at multiple offers. So my, my standing advice for residents is to start early, start at least nine to 12 months out. You can definitely start negotiating and working on it that far out. Uh, and that's the, the preferred timeline to start. Um, and then also look at multiple employers, try to get multiple offers at the same time. Now, when you at what point in that negotiation process or that getting to know you process, are you going to actually get a contract? That's a good question. Um, let's back up for a second. First, uh, you have to start to develop or you need to start to develop an idea of what you'll like to do. Mm. If the job offers something that you don't think that you will like to do, compensation doesn't matter. The obligations don't matter. Uh, the contract doesn't really matter because it's not really going to last. If you don't like doing it, especially as a physician, your jobs are so hard. If you don't like what you're doing, uh, if you're not excited about it, it's not going to last. It's not worth it. So that is really question number one. Um, But for most, uh, most physicians will kind of narrow in on an area. Let's say they like outpatient psychiatry, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, They'll they'll narrow in on on an area, um, and uh, from there, my advice is to try to get multiple uh, offers coming in at the same time. Uh, most specialties are able to accomplish this. Physicians are in super high demand right now. There's really not enough of you, and there's a huge need of you. Um, and that's pretty consistent for uh, the majority of specialties at this point. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's a good starting point. Now, when you get a contract offer, when you actually get the contract in your hand, uh, usually happens after the initial interview process. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's like a second interview process. Um, and then sometimes there's a like an offer letter that will come. The offer okay. letter sometimes will have like some basic information. Here's the base compensation. You get our full benefits package. Sometimes no explanation of what full benefits even mean, but they say you get the full benefits package and you get, maybe they'll talk about some PTO and a few details about the job. And then uh, they ask you if you agree. Uh, That's not the contract though. That's just the offer letter. Some physicians will get a little bit confused and think, oh, the offer letter, I just signed that and we're good to go. Like that is the contract. That's not the contract. That's just like an initial outline of what the job is to see if the physician and the employer are on the same page. If they are on the same page and it looks like something just on the surface that you might be interested in, then uh, you should say, okay, I I approve of the offer letter, uh, but I would like to see the full contract and have time to review it. Okay. What employers will sometimes do is at that point, they'll say, oh, great, you're in. We're so excited to see you on July 1st of next year. Here's the contract. Go ahead and sign it. Like they kind of like blow through that piece, right? Um, and sometimes it's strategic. They don't really want you to uh, read it in detail. They don't want you to call a physician contract lawyer to break it down to you and to identify ways that you can negotiate and improve it. They just want you to sign their standard base contract. So watch out for that. Uh, when you get that, that, that initial contract offer, give it some pause. You often have time to work on it, to negotiate it. Uh, so yeah. What is the, uh, with the offer letters, if you sign the offer letter, are you bound to anything? 
No, so the offer letter uh, is only, um, it's usually only enforceable for confidentiality issues. That's, that's really rare for physicians. Uh, the offer letter is almost just not enforceable at all. Uh, it's really just a um, just an initial test to see if the physician and the employer are generally on the same page. Okay. In the business world, like when I'm working for small businesses and negotiating their contracts, an offer letter sometimes called a term sheet. Sometimes that offer letter is negotiated before there's like a longer, more detailed uh, contract contract negotiation. But for physicians, it's really just an initial review to see if you're on the same page. Gotcha. And I didn't say this earlier. This is not legal advice. Um, I'll make another um, disclaimer for doing <laughs> the show. It's not legal advice, but this is a, a great conversation. So you should m- entertain multiple offers. You'll get these different offer letters for the places you like and then say, hey, let me have, see the contract. Now, some people will say we you have a week to sign this or like two, right? Don't some people put a time limit on that? Yeah. So one of the most common physician employer negotiation tactics is to put a really short timeline on your review of the contract. It's very rare that they'll actually hold you to that deadline. Uh, sometimes they see like two or three days you have to sign this. Wow. Uh, and that's, that, that's not, it's very rare that that's true. So when physicians come to me, they often are in a bit of a, um, a little bit frantic. They realize, oh, I have this contract and only have two or three days to review it. Can you help me immediately? One of the first things we talk about is the timeline. Make sure that it's a timeline that works for you. Um, again, it's very rare that a, that a physician employer will hold you to in a reasonably short timeline. Like eventually they have to start looking for other applicants, right? Uh, yeah. You can't hold that offer for you know, several months, for example, but you have weeks, I would say to negotiate, to, to work towards, um, a final solution that makes sense for you. Speaking of timelines. So you said nine to 12 months out, we're looking for a job. We're entertaining these offer letters, these contracts. When do we need a contract lawyer? So if you're, looking at multiple offers and gaining multiple options at the same time, you might not need me until you have those offers in hand. Okay. Now, if you want some advice on how to piece this together, um, some, some consulting on the front end, I'm happy to do that. And I can add a lot of value on the front end before you even start interviewing. Uh, so let's back up. Let's address that for a moment. So when you're interviewing, sometimes employers will get a little bit strategic about the questions that they ask, the things that they want and, and need to know about you specifically to tailor your offer in a way that uh, will make you want to sign it. Watch out for giving away too much information during the interview process. Huh. I don't want you to like hide who you are during the interview process. But if during the interview process, you already have multiple offers, you have other offers in hand, uh, I see quite often, I saw it today, actually, uh, it's just on my mind, uh, that an employer was asking the physician, how much is your other offer? And then like, they're like, okay, we can do 20 grand more. We can do five grand more. Like if you, if you let out too much information about your other offers, then it could hurt you during the negotiation process. So I would say that would be the main reason to hire me to, to talk about it before you get contracts. 
Um, But look, if you're able to kind of time out the uh, obtaining of options, obtaining of contracts on the front end, and you get a few offers together, then I would say that's a great time to hire me. Let's take your two or three offers. Let's put them together, compare them side to side. I really need time on the front end to get to know the position. What's best for you, Stephen, might not be best for my wife, Allie. It might not be best for somebody else. Yeah. Uh, family situations differ. People have different um, preferences on schedules, on a whole host of details about your job, right? So it's not like one job is objectively better than the other in all situations. It's really uh, on a case-by-case basis. So I need some time to get to know the physician to uh, to talk through these issues and, and figure out what is best for them. Yeah. Can't rush that piece. So what we'll, we'll have that conversation and then we'll review the contracts uh, and then we'll game plan what our strategy is next. Uh, sometimes one is just obviously better than the other and we're looking for a couple key changes in the one contract uh, and then we're kind of good to go. Sometimes I say, look, neither of these contracts are really what you're looking for. You need to expand your search a little bit and check out these types of employers, right? And then sometimes... We have a, a, a couple options that are viable, and we start negotiating against each other to see, see how good we can get them. Employers hate to lose out on negotiations, especially to other employers in their same jurisdiction, their same area. Okay. They really don't like that. So uh, keep that in mind when you're negotiating. But yeah, so once you have those contracts in hand, that's a great time to, to hire me for residents. Um, I also, so when you're looking at your second contract or when it's time to renegotiate your, your first contract, those are also great times to hire me. The only time to hire a physician contract lawyer isn't the first time, the first contract. You should definitely hire and, and negotiate your first contract. Uh, but really, you should always be negotiating with your employer. When I say that, sometimes I get some really odd looks from physicians like, wait, this isn't done. Like, I got to keep negotiating. I hate yeah. negotiating. That's what I hired you for. Like, why, why <laughs> right. are you saying that? <laughs> right? Uh, but employers over time will often uh, constantly ask for a little bit more, mm. a little bit more call, a little bit more time with patients, a little less time off, a little bit more admin time those little ticky-tack ass over time start to add up. Um, And then also sometimes compensation decreases. Physicians often don't try to renegotiate their sign-on bonus. Just kind of rolls off. And then you don't think about it like two, three, four years down the road. Like, hey, I got a $100,000 sign-on bonus for a four-year contract. My four years is up. Now I just don't get another one. Like you should think about renegotiating your contract. Uh, and make sure that um, you're not leaving money on the table. So you should always kind of have that negotiating mindset with your employer. I also encourage uh, physicians to uh, to stay current on what their next best job offer could be. Okay. So if you're always kind of aware of like what your next best offer is, you're aware of uh, how far you can push your employer. Uh, how much you can tell your employer no. And that's super powerful for for physicians. If you're a physician and you know that your next best option is just as good as your current job and your current job is asking you to do things that you don't want to do, 
you have the power to tell them no. But yeah. if you don't have that power, if your next best option uh, is really not that great, uh, then you can't really say no. Or saying no is really painful. So that's another thing that I, I work through with physicians quite regularly. That's good. I got two two follow-up questions. So we talked about you have the contracts and then we can um, you know talk with you. How much lead time do you, I'm a procrastinator. I'm, I'm not going to procrastinate when it comes to this. But I'll stay on you, Steve. Don't worry. <laughs> how much lead time do you need? Like, I got a contract on Monday. Like, when should I have contacted you or any lawyer? Um, so, the prudent thing to do would be to reach out to me probably a couple weeks in advance and say, hey, look, my plan right now is to get contracts from these three employers. I'm interviewing okay. with them right now. Let me know what your schedule looks like. I'm pretty open. I open up time in the evenings. Physicians are busy during the day. Like you guys are in residency, you're working all day. Sometimes you're working all day and all night, right? Uh, I try <laughs> yeah. to be as flexible as as possible. Um, I have extra time when the babies go to sleep. So I often have a meeting at 7.30 p.m. most nights. Oh, wow. But I'll be pretty flexible. I open up some, some early time, some late times. I can usually turn it around within two or three days. But okay. I encourage you to reach out as as early as possible. Gotcha. So a little chat and then a couple of days to look over the actual contract. Right. I think it makes the most sense uh, if we have that initial call, uh, the get to know you call to talk about who you are and what you need and what you're looking for in advance. We can do that a couple of weeks ahead of time um, before you start collecting contracts and maybe streamline, streamline that process a little bit. Nice. The second question, money. So I mean, cause I, for what I know, lawyers, you know, you guys bill by the hour. So at what point am I keeping you on retainer? Am I paying by the hour? Or, and not just you, but in general, what to expect from contract lawyers? So I'd say that most lawyers, a small group of lawyers that focus on physician contracts, I would say that most physician contract lawyers will offer, and me included, will offer a, a flat fee for reviewing one contract okay. and we'll often offer offer a flat fee for uh reviewing two or three contracts a little bit more than the than the one contract obviously and then they'll offer like a do-it-all type flat fee uh so the way that i structure it is for the single contract review um right now i'm at 750 so that includes the initial call, the get-to-know-you call. I look over your contract with you in mind. We have a conversation about that contract, the pros and cons. And then I produce some sort of writing, either an email to you with our, a summary of our discussion, a summary of the most important points, yeah. or a – this is my favorite, actually uh, – either a ghostwritten email or – a letter from my letterhead to your employer outlining the contract changes that we need. Huh. So that's my kind of standard single contract review. Obviously, okay. we increase it a little bit for two contracts or three contracts. Uh, and then usually the best deal for the physician is after that single contract review to move over to an hourly rate. And okay. just use me as is needed through the negotiation. So sometimes that means I take over the, the negotiation, I talk directly with the employer, uh, and I advocate on your behalf. Um, sometimes an even better way to do it is to allow me to kind of 
coach you and ghostwrite emails, ghostwrite correspondences in the background. So you're the one doing the negotiation. You're the one who has power. You're the one telling your employer that you will do this and you won't do this. And this is the comp that you need. Okay. Uh, and I help you structure your arguments, organize them in a way that is likely to be most effective. And I use my experience and background to do that. So I find that to be quite an effective way to help physicians negotiate their contracts. Okay. And is there a difference between a contract lawyer and a lawyer that does contracts? And like, is how should we pick who we work with? So no one goes to law school to be a physician contract lawyer. That's kind of like <laughs> a very small group of folks, right? There's no residency no, for that. There, no residency for that. There's no like <laughs> bonus LLM year for physician contracts in law schools. Um, there's, I, I'm unaware of a single physician employment contract class in law school. There's healthcare classes, right? But usually folks who do physician contracts regularly, like often it's a, it's a significant part of their practice are better for you. Physician contract lawyers sometimes come from the business litigation background like me. Some will come from more of a business transactional background. Some will come from like a tax background. But the best way to, to get the most out of your lawyer is to make sure that your lawyer is well-versed in physician contracts. It's a challenge. I'm not saying that a, physi- a, a, a lawyer that has never reviewed a physician contract can't. Um, they certainly can uh, but it's a challenge to get fully caught up on physician contract issues. Contract issues that are very specific to physicians is challenging to get caught up on all of those issues in a timely way uh, to help one person. So yeah. uh, I encourage folks who are looking for a physician contract lawyer, uh, one, to consider me, right? I'm a great choice, <laughs> but also consider uh, someone who has experience with physicians. Yeah, perfect. And you do work across state lines. You're uh, licensed or barred in, oh, I don't know, it's barred? Is that how you say it? Correct. Uh, I'm licensed in Wisconsin and in Louisiana. But because of the nature of physician contracts, uh, I can work with physicians across all states. Okay. I can work where they are. Um, and yeah. Fantastic. So... What are some of the common mistakes that you see physicians, young and old, make with regards to their contracts? So for starters, they often start looking just at one offer. We covered that. They often either don't read it completely or they read it and they don't fully understand it. And they don't take the steps to understand the, the thing that they're signing. Um, often they only look at compensation and they... Um, they don't fully appreciate uh, the obligations that come along to obtain that compensation. Hmm. And then uh, they often are not, are not thinking all the way through on exit plan and your ongoing leverage during the contract. Uh, and they often don't negotiate it. They sign the first offer that is provided. So uh, the way I like to look at physician contracts, just, just an overview of what you're doing. You're looking at compensation. You're comparing it to the obligations that you're required to do to obtain that compensation. And third, you're looking at your leverage and your exit. So when you put those three issues together, 
Uh, that's when you're properly evaluating your contract. And if you're negotiating or trying to negotiate those issues, um, you're in good shape. So folks kind of uh, sometimes don't fully appreciate the leverage and exit piece. Uh, the most important piece of that is the non-compete. Non-competes restrict you from practicing in a certain geographic area for a certain period of time. Uh, and they restrict your options if the employment doesn't work out. Non-competes survive the end of contracts. So if a physician employer terminates your contract, maybe they terminate you without cause. That happens sometimes. Uh, often, especially if you don't negotiate your contract, often the non-compete will survive termination and uh, you'll be restricted from practicing in a certain area for a certain period of times. So you want to avoid that. Physician employers love that clause. It's one of their most powerful clauses. Um, so it's one of the issues that they're least likely to want to negotiate. Uh, but depending on your leverage and depending on your, your unique situation, you can negotiate down or eliminate pieces of non-compete. Some employers will remove the non-compete completely. But yeah, when you put together those three issues uh, and you try to negotiate them, that's when you have your best outcome. Let's talk a little bit more about non-competes. Like what are some of the least restrictive non-competes for some of the, like, I guess, the most restrictive non-compete you've seen? Hey, it's Steven, host of the Black Doctors Podcast. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn. They are a sponsor of the Black Doctors Podcast, and we're thankful for them investing in our mission. TrueLearn is a company that specializes in test preparation. They provide a data-driven approach to help students prepare for their examinations. They provide resources for those in the medical licensure exam process, or the COMLEX, the USMLE, and even for physician assistants. And they also provide resources for subspecialty exam prep. Specifically for those in medical school, they offer individual NBME subject exams, smart banks, and they cover the rotations that include neurology, emergency medicine, psychiatry, pediatrics, surgery, OBGYN, family medicine, and internal medicine. Eight different subspecialties. As a special bonus for those of you that listen to the show, TrueLearn is offering a discount. To receive that discount, visit their website. When you sign up for one of their products, use the code BDPODCAST. So Black Doctors Podcast. There's also going to be a link in the show notes. Check that out. Everybody loves saving money. And now let's get back to today's episode. More about non-competes. Like what are some of the least restrictive non-competes for some of the, like, I guess, the most restrictive non-compete you've seen? Sure. So... I saw one, not for a physician uh, recently, but I saw one that was three years, 200 miles. Yikes. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the craziest one I saw. It wasn't a physician. The toughest one that I've seen recently for a physician was three years and 50 miles. Okay. So imagine, and, so, and it extended to all types of practice of medicine. It wasn't limited to like outpatient psychiatry or psychiatry ED or some, you know, some small piece of the specialty, it was to all types of practice of medicine. Um, and it applied regardless if the physician terminated the contract with or without cause, or if the employer terminated the contract with or without cause. So theoretically, the employer could bring you in, decide that they don't want you anymore, uh, or decide that they can hire someone else to do your job for cheaper and then enforce a non-compete against you, 50 miles in all direction is a long way. That's pretty much you, you might have to move or accept a, a tele position. Um, mm. Some specialties can do tele. 
uh, like psychiatry. Uh, but some some specialties can't. Uh, so you want to watch out for a non-compete that is really a you have to move non-compete. Um, but also you want to read the non-compete in conjunction with your exit plan. Okay. If non-compete doesn't affect your exit plan, like if you kind of live somewhat farther away from this employer and your next best option is outside of the non-compete anyways, then it really might not be uh, that big of an issue for you. Um, like for us, we live, um, I think it's 70 miles from my wife's employer. She has uh, quite a bit of a, um, of a commute. Um, they make it worthwhile, but for us, the non-compete doesn't really knock out that many competitors. So uh, it hasn't been uh, an issue that affects the exit plan. Yeah. So... Yeah. And I've heard that in addition to that, like some non-competes will list all the locations of institutions. So some hospitals have outlying clinics and they may tack that on to that outlying clinic. Correct. Uh, controlling the location of the bubble. So let's back up. So when they say 20 miles, there's talking about how the crow flies, not you're driving on Google Maps. Okay. So physicians mess that up too. They'll say, oh, if I'm driving from here to wherever, it's only 20 miles. But, uh, you know, as a crow flies, uh, that 20 miles extends a lot farther. So it's farther than you might think. But also you got to look at the locations. Uh, if the employer has a non-compete that allows them to draw a bubble out of around every location that they have, then that's super powerful. Also think, all these healthcare companies, they're all like buying each other out, merging and stuff. Like, what if you agreed to that and then all of a sudden your employer bought out a competitor that was like on the other side of the state or just outside of your like your core jurisdiction? And then all of a sudden your non-compete applied way outside of what you initially thought. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of danger there. Most, I'll say this, most non-competes don't have that provision. Most non-competes will say, uh, it is from the location that you either primarily work or every location that you've at least worked 30 days in the last 12 months. Okay. So that second piece could also be very exp expansive, right? Uh, if you're, you know, if you're working at a number of different locations, then we got to draw a lot of circles on Google Maps to figure out where you could go. And it gets a little bit tedious. So how big of a deal is it to break a non-compete? Yeah, so I evaluate options for challenging or breaking non-competes quite often. Most physicians who are thinking about terminating their contract or their employer has terminated their contract uh, will be looking closely at the non-compete to determine what their options are, okay? Part of that analysis is, is your non-compete enforceable? The vast majority of the time, it is enforceable. The folks who draft non-competes for large healthcare employers are often quite competent lawyers. Like they're good, like they're yeah. drafted in a way that's enforceable, right? They think about this quite often. It's one of the most important legal pieces that they have. So for, for large, like savvy, mature employers, uh, their non-competes are often quite enforceable. Some smaller employers will still use like an old form from 20 years ago that doesn't make any sense in current law, but that's few and far between. That's not the norm. So often it's likely enforceable. Um, but the real question is, 
what is your leverage to extract some concessions? No employer really wants to go up uh, against their former employee in court. Healthcare companies hate going to court. They don't like it. Businesses don't like going to court. And they really don't like public lawsuits against their former employees. So even if there's like the non-compete is not great for you, there might be a place where it's worth it to try to challenge it, to try to file a lawsuit or at least threaten to file a lawsuit to uh, have a court determine that the non-compete is unenforceable. I'm actually uh, talking about that with a client today, uh, their probability of success. Even if it's not super high, it can be worth it. If your next best option is within that bubble and is much better than the next best option outside of that bubble, then it might be worth it to take a shot uh, and to try to challenge non-compete. Your best uh, situations to challenge a non-compete are usually um, if it's maybe an employer termination. Okay. I think courts are less likely to uh, have sympathy for an employer that voluntarily terminates the physician without cause, without reason. Um, look, if you're thinking that you're going to get a better deal on the open market by hiring another physician, why do you need to prevent this physician from working close by? You don't have a good business reason for that. Um, so that's often a strong argument. Uh, sometimes the outer edges of the geographic limit can be challenged. Often if you're doing a different type of work in your specialty, Let's say you're going from outpatient psychiatry with a patient panel to an inpatient psychiatry and you, you don't have your own patient panel, right? Yeah. Then there's a little bit less concern from the current employer that you're going to take their, their clients, their patients uh, with you when you go. That, uh, that situation is, is more favorable for the physician. So each individual situation uh, is a little bit different. If you're thinking about breaking a non-compete, that's a really good reason to hire a lawyer to ha have a conversation with a lawyer about um, what your options are. I wouldn't encourage a physician to do that without having a conversation with a lawyer. So if I just broke a non-compete and started working next door, like what is, what kind What's of repercussions? Yeah. <laughs> so let's say you just did it. You know, yeah. you just broke it. You probably get a cease and desist letter from your former employer saying you signed this contract, you have a non-compete, you're violating the non-compete. If you don't stop violating the non-compete within, I don't know, five days, then we're going to sue you to enforce our rights. So Michael, I, I, Michael, I don't, I don't check, I don't check my mail. I check my mail like once a month. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're going to get served by a processor oh, no. uh, with a lawsuit then. Um, getting served with the lawsuit is not super fun, right? But look, people get served with lawsuits all the time. I file lawsuits against people. Like Oof. it happens. If you get hit with a lawsuit, uh, don't freak out. You should definitely call a lawyer. But look, if you get a demand letter and you ignore that demand letter, you know, maybe it's a scare tactic. Maybe they're not actually going to file a lawsuit, but they probably would. And then you'll get served. You'll have to go to court and argue your reasons why. Uh, you should not have to honor that non-compete. So if you're going to court and like just asking a court to adjudicate whether that non-compete is enforceable, um, that might not take that much time. Sometimes, uh, especially in Wisconsin, sometimes you can get that done 
in two to four months. Okay. But let's say you lose, let's say you lose the non-compete argument. Then starting from the second that you stop that job, you have to wait whatever the period was, 18 months, 24 months, whatever the, the period in your non-compete was. You have to stop that job just cold and wait the period and then restart. The more practical way would be to look for a job outside of the circle at that point. Um, I see this most often with physicians that are going to start their own practice, their own private practice. Yeah. Often there's a ton of value of going from one employer to starting your own private practice, like very close to the location that you used to work at. That's where all your patients are, right? That's where the most value can be had. And there's a diminishing value to starting a practice 30 miles away from where you uh, have your patients. Not to mean patients are going to follow you 30 miles, maybe, right? So that's the situation that I see non-competes get evaluated and looked at very closely. But but yeah, that's a good um, kind of overview. If you violate your non-compete, you're probably going to have to hire an attorney. If you're moving from one like larger, sophisticated uh, employer to another, the other one is probably going to know already what your non-compete is. Okay. And they're probably not going to hire you if you're there within your non-compete. Remember, all of these like larger employers, none of them want to be out there violating non-competes, violating each other's non-competes, because they really gotcha. want all these non-competes to be super enforceable. So what I see um, is that if, if there's a question or if uh, hiring this physician would violate their physician, that, that physician's prior non-compete, then either they need a letter from legal from the first employer saying that they're not going to enforce their rights or they're not going to hire that physician. Okay. Makes so sense. that decision is probably going to be taken out of your hands unless you're starting a private practice. Gotcha. Man, oh, that's that's heavy. So I'll definitely be be looking at the the It matters, man. It really <laughs> matters. Uh, the exit the exit plan um, is an area that first contract physicians uh, just don't always think all the way through, uh, and then they get surprised. But also, like, look, sometimes the compensation obligations dynamic is such that a punitive non-compete may be worth it. It may be so much better than other options that you're willing to take that chance. But you have to know that if you're, if you're taking that chance, that exit is um, really painful Uh, and you might have a decrease in compensation. You might have to work harder for the same compensation. You got to watch out. Uh, If you have a punitive non-compete, you really got to watch out for, um, uh, for lifestyle creep. If you get really deep into a home, let's say you go out, you, you finish residency right out of the gate, you buy a million dollar home, a couple Teslas and you know, your, your, your pocketbook, you can only last maybe two or three paychecks until you have to start considering selling houses and moving, uh, without a salary. If you're in that financial situation, you can't say no. You can't breach your non-compete. Yeah. If the employer wants to change, either decrease your compensation or increase your obligations, uh, you really can't tell them no because your exit plan is pretty weak and you don't have funds to fight back. So uh, the non-compete, uh, regardless, you need to factor it in to your your decision. Uh, also factor it into your, your personal finances, how it may affect uh, the whole That's picture. Good. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm going to ask, this is probably one of the, the questions that most people have. 
I put this up on our Instagram, the Black Daughters Podcast Instagram, as a question or question box. And um, I can't remember who asked it, but it's a question I had as well. So sure, you can negotiate with private practices and with groups, but what about the big healthcare corporations and the academic medical centers? So big healthcare corporations, yes. How much you can get out of them depends on your leverage. If you go to them and it's April and they know that you're graduating in June and you don't have any other offers, uh, then no, you're probably not going to extract any concessions because you really don't have any negotiation leverage. Maybe you can, but you're, you're unlikely to, right? Um, if you have ample time to negotiate and you have multiple offers, then yes, you can extract meaningful concessions from these larger corporate employers. From academic, often they're pretty stuck on compensation. It really just depends. It's super uh, situation specific. Um, I had, uh, thinking about academic institutions, I had a, uh, a client recently, an OB that was trained in abortions. And an important piece of her negotiation was to make sure that she could do that, even if the law changes. I guess what the law changed like a few months later, or it might change, right? We're, we're waiting on the rulings from, from Roe v. Yeah. Wade, right? But an important piece was like thinking through her employment at this academic institution and seeing about ways, creative ways, that we could protect uh, her ability to do that. Um, so yes, you can negotiate even with academic employers. If you're trying to get paid by an academic employer, like you're working for a big corporate employer or or like a lucrative private practice, then no, like you're probably not going to accomplish that. Right. You know, they're, they're probably not going to pay you a hundred thousand dollars more than the folks that have been there for 20 years. Probably not going to do that. But if uh, it's maybe something about call or call schedule or PTO or potential moonlighting opportunities, moonlighting opportunities can offer a lot of um, very lucrative opportunities to increase your compensation. Um, Also, maybe exercise some skills that you don't get in your primary employment. Maybe try out some new things. So I love to try to negotiate an open moonlighting provision. Okay. Uh, but all of those types of visions, they are negotiable for academic institutions. Gotcha. So, so when the big academic centers or the corporations give you that contract and say, we don't negotiate, it is still worthwhile to be like, hey, Michael, can you take a look at this? They say in the first email that this is our standard contract, here it is. And we don't negotiate. They say that all the time. Okay. And really, like, what else can they say, right? Are they going to say, like, <laughs> here's our contract and mark it up as you want. Like, get your lawyer to rewrite it for us. Like, we'll accept that. Like, of course, they're not going to say that, right? right. They're going to say that this is what it is and we're going to stick to it. Um, and if you take them at their word at that point, uh, you're probably not going to get the best contract. Um, yeah. but if you advocate for the things that are important to you, uh, you may get them, but also an important piece, Stephen, is like, even when we are unsuccessful at negotiating for the points that are important, important for physician, 
we learn important things about that employer. The things that they say no to are often as important, as valuable to know on the front end as the things that they say yes to. Hmm. So, for example, a piece that I like to negotiate is call schedule. Yeah. Something about call being even or equitable. Hmm. If you look at most call schedule provisions and contracts, it's either just completely flat and vague, or they'll say something like employer can um, can uh, uh, provide call or require a physician to uh, provide call as needed, or something like basically however they want. Um, if you negotiate a piece in there about even or equitable call, then it gives you some protections uh, in the future. Let's say you're in a group of, I keep using psychiatry, uh, but it, let's say you're in a group of 10 psychiatrists and three are on the edge of retiring and that employer is able to keep them around by saying, hey, stay here, keep doing your job. We're not going to require you to do call anymore. We're not going to require you to come in on weekends or mm. uh, we're going to reduce your hours, but please stay here. We really, really need you. Uh, and those exiting physicians just have a ton of negotiating leverage. So now you have 10 physicians, but only seven of them are taking call. That wasn't the original deal, right? Like the original yeah. deal, the original thought was that 10 out of 10 would be taking call. Now seven out of 10 are taking call. So if you didn't negotiate that piece of your contract, you don't really have an argument to say, or you might have a, a weaker argument to say, hey, look, you can't put all that extra call on me, yeah. right? An employer that really pushes hard on an equal or equitable call schedule uh, might be signaling to you that... Uh, they don't intend to dish out call evenly or equitably. Like that's important to know on the front end, right? It also yeah. gives us a lot of opportunities to ask uh, what and how questions. How does that work? What do you mean by that? How should call be um, uh, be determined? What factors do you use to determine which physicians uh, take which call days? You know, and it, it forces them to, to answer some Sometimes difficult questions, right? So uh, I had a, a negotiation recently where we went back and forth on that issue, and the employer was adamant against uh, agreeing to equal call or equitable call. At the end of the day, they added a sentence. It said something like, um, employer and physicians shall agree to an equitable call schedule at the sole like at the sole option of the employer. <laughs> like, what, what are you talking about? That doesn't mean anything. Like, yeah, um, that's another lawyerly trick. We can write sentences that literally have no meaning. Oh, gosh. And I see it all the time. Like if, if physicians negotiate their own contracts, sometimes they'll ask for something and the employer will be like, yeah, 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 sure. We added the sentence to cover your issue. And the sentence is just not enforceable. It says something like maybe or may or could. Um, I'm working on one where the physician wants the option of moving on to tele. Okay. Really wants that option, kind of needs it for their situation. And the first um, offer by the employer to, to cover that 
was a sentence that the employer may allow physician to provide services via telepsychiatry, period. So you use the word may, maybe they will, maybe they won't, right? So yeah. if you push back on those, those types of tricky lawyer language uh, type things, you might learn a lot about your employee. Even if eventually they just say, say no, uh, it's better to know the bad stuff in advance than learn it a year or two down the road after um, you've already made a lot of decisions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I've seen that firsthand. I do some moonlighting and then working with a large uh, hospital corporation and the surgeons at this small community hospital, I think there's there's four, maybe five general surgeons. And talking to them, because there's five, their call is Q5, and then somebody retired. Now it was Q4. And then one of the surgeons was trying to get out and, and change lifestyle, move somewhere else. And of course, I think it was like a, a six-month uh, period. So for that time, she she was stuck in this Q4 call because then they're going to be out to Q3. And then you have to try and force the hospital system to bring in locums or some other people. But like you mentioned, like you just got to cover the call. Yeah, call has to be covered, right? So let's say you went from Q5 to Q3 call. Often the physicians have nothing in the contract that requires the employer to pay them more as call increases. Yeah. That's almost never in there, right? Like what employer would add that provision in voluntarily, right? Nobody has that. So that would be a great, a great uh, provision to negotiate for folks in that situation. That look, if, if a uh, situation changes and we have less than Q5 call, then, you know, additional compensation must be provided and reasonable or so, some sort of statement that says the employer has to pay you a little bit more. Yeah. Oh, Michael, I'm learning so much. I think this is just the tip of the iceberg because, again, you put content out. You're talking about Stark Law and some recent cases on your Instagram page, uh, which is at... Uh, physician Contracts. Yeah, Physician Contracts. Uh, yeah, so recently, Michael, I saw on your Instagram page uh, at Physician Contracts, check it out, a lot of little video clips, and you're talking about some recent cases that that are happening in the news so this is just the tip of the iceberg. I know you also have some blog posts on your website, uh, which will include links to that website. But as we start to wrap up, what are some of the common arguments that employers make to kind of kind of push physicians off of securing a really good contract? So uh, there's like a laundry list of kind of the basics that I hear at least one of these 10 or 15 or so almost every time. First one is this is our standard contract and we don't negotiate. Yeah. Say that pretty much every time. It's pretty much mean, meaningless. Uh, don't let that trip you up. Next, if you identify an issue in the contract and you request a change, sometimes they'll respond by saying, We've never had that problem. Hmm. It's like, okay, maybe you haven't, maybe you haven't, right? But like, if it's no problem for you, how about you just agree to the contract change that I want, right? If it means nothing to you and it means something to me, then change it. That's a silly response. So I get that. I see that a lot. Uh, I see a lot of false use of Stark Law to scare physicians. So Stark Law really matters in a handful of scenarios. Under Stark Law, you can't be paid in a way that's commercially, commercially unreasonable. Uh, and it can't the the physician's compensation um, 
can't be outside of fair market value. But really the kicker is when a physician's compensation is tied to the value of their referrals. In every other industry, or virtually every other industry, the value of your referrals kind of controls the value of your business. Yeah. Right? But for physicians that accept Medicare, Medicaid, and government contracts, uh, you can't value the physician or their practice based on the value of referrals. Okay. But for a lot of folks that I work with, look, if I'm working with a psychiatrist or someone in family practice or a pediatrician, like the referrals are really not that valuable. Like it's not, that's not the issue here. And also they're very rarely compensated, like accidentally compensated based on referrals. That's usually not a piece of their compensation at all. But physicians will, will use this argument that, look, your compensation can't be any higher because we have Stark Law concerns. And Stark Law is this big bag boogeyman that will come and like take away our nonprofit status and we'll have IRS issues. So occasionally it's a legitimate concern, but I see it used as a scare tactic for physicians way too often. It'll also be used when physicians um, want to try to decrease some of the obligations. So remember, like evaluating a contract that's the compensation versus the obligations with leverage and exit in mind, right? That's the general framework that we work through. And uh, I see it as used as an argument when a physician wants to slightly reduce, comp uh, reduce the obligations side of it. Okay. And that's, that's very rarely legitimate. Um, sometimes they'll like, make some other arguments like we, we can't do that thing that you want because we're a patient-centered practice and the thing that you're asking is not patient-centered. Okay. Like they do this guilt trip thing where, you know, they remind you of your, your duty to patients and they use it sometimes strategically to, uh, to argue that you can't, you're not allowed to do the thing. It's usually something super reasonable like, you know, look, I want to take two weeks of PTO in a row. Like, well, we can't do that because uh, we're, we're a patient-centered practice and that doesn't serve patients. Or I like to negotiate um, specialty schedules. So like a 410 schedule or like a 312 schedule or some sort of flex scheduling. I like to extend weekends for physicians if I can. Uh, but sometimes a pushback on that will be, look, we can't do that because it's not good for our patients. Uh, and that's just nonsense. If you hear the patient-centered argument, um, it's probably because they have no other better arguments, frankly, uh, and that's all they got. Sometimes they'll try to drive a wedge between me and my client. I see that as a common mm. negotiating tactic. Uh, it's usually if the person that we're working with uh, is new or, or hasn't really dealt with a physician that's willing to negotiate their contracts. Most physicians don't negotiate their contracts. They sign the first one probably 90%. I don't know what that percentage is. Um, we should probably throw up a poll to see how many physicians have actually tried to negotiate yeah. their contract. That'd be really fascinated. But I imagine it's 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 a very low number. Um, most sign the first thing that's provided. So uh, every once in a while, if you if you hire an attorney to help you kind of collect your thoughts and negotiate your contract in a meaningful way, sometimes you'll get some internal pushback from employers, uh, and you can largely ignore that physicians hire lawyers to negotiate the contracts all the time. Um, it's nothing to be scared of. So I'd say those are the main uh, high points 
uh, things that you'll probably see if you negotiate your contract and don't let them trip you up. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you've brought so much value to our listeners, wherever they are at their stage of their career, from pre-med to residency <laughs> to attendings. I personally learned a lot and I'll definitely be uh, staying in touch, giving you a call later this fall. Love to. Love to help you out. And as we wrap up, where can people get a hold of you? Uh, the best way is to visit my website, uh, michaeljohnsonlegal.com. Um, I also just bought physiciancontracts.com, so I'm hopeful by, by the time that the, the listener is listening to this, I have that attached appropriately and I have all my material up, but one of those two uh, websites will get to me. Um, my Instagram is physiciancontracts. Uh, you can send me a message through Instagram. Um, and my email is on my website too. My initials MEJ at michaeljohnsonlegal.com. Uh, my phone number is up there as well. Uh, best ways to get a hold of me. Fantastic. Well, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode because representation truly does matter. Again, we're donating a portion of the proceeds from this episode to whichever charitable organization you choose as a listener. So go visit us on Instagram, send us a DM or check out one of the polls and the stories if I remember to put one of those things up. Thanks for tuning in. Catch us next week. This week's sign out is brought to us by Dr. D'Angela Pitts. She is an obstetrician gynecologist and a maternal fetal medicine specialist here to share her thoughts on the recent ruling by the Supreme Court. Hi, I'm Dr. D'Angela Pitts. I am a maternal fetal medicine physician and also director of maternal health equity. I wanted to just share my opinions and viewpoints on what happened on Friday, which shook everyone. And I I would say that I'm not surprised. I think with the, the leak, we were prepared for this or we knew that this could possibly come. And I'm not I'm just not surprised of everything that has happened recently. So what happened on Friday was the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And this was the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case. And it shook the nation. It shook social media. It, it shook all of our healthcare systems, a healthcare system that is already failing women of reproductive age, failing women of color. And for the United States to be a high income country, women are dying of preventable causes in labor. And it's just showing the inequities and disparities by race and ethnicity. So what does that actually mean? When it was overturned by the Supreme Court, now it goes back to individual states. So the state that I am in, I know it's laws and there are certain other states that have restrictive laws or more restrictive laws that when that case was overturned, it immediately went back to the most recent law in that state. And there's some states that have trigger laws where it will come into effect within a certain amount of time. And it it's just heartbreaking. Um, I recently posted a tweet about this, and it said, as a high-risk OB doctor, I have held patients crying after a diagnosis of fetal anomaly or discussing how this pregnancy could kill them. This decision not only puts limitations on my ability as a doctor, but worse for my patients looking for options. And it's not a just 
it's not only about a pregnancy that has an abnormality or maternal mortality. There honestly doesn't need to be a reason why a woman chooses to make a choice. There can be financial hardships. There can be a domestic violence relationship. This can be a way of controlling. So this whole decision is to control women's bodies. And it it's just devastating. It is absolutely devastating. And it's going to worsen our disparities and our disparity gaps because people are still going to have abortions. Abortions are not going anywhere. But people are now going to have unsafe abortions. And unsafe goes back to before Roe v. Wade, when we had septic abortions and using coat hangers and trauma to end this. It's going to increase our suicide rates, our domestic violence rates. And it's, again, just providing fewer options for providers like myself who perform these procedures. Abortion is healthcare. This is what we do every day. So when a woman has a miscarriage and we counsel her on the options, that is giving appeal to going ahead and removing the contents of the uterus or even a surgery, an ectopic pregnancy that is in the tubes and continuing to grow. So these are all reasons why we use abortions or D&E or DNC. And it's just going to create anxiety amongst healthcare providers because we don't want to be criminalized. It's going to result in thousands of unplanned death, increasing the likelihood of maternal morbidity and mortality, preterm births, low birth rate, impaired child development. Um, We talked about suicide. We talked about domestic violence. And again, like back in the day, those with money are still going to get abortions. It really affects, it really affects those that are poverty and lack of access. So this is a lack of access and this is just controlling. So people think about the immediate impact, but I'm scared for the long-term impact. The Black Doctors Podcast is a volunteer passion project that is building a community and inspiring current and future Black physicians and healthcare workers. If you enjoy listening, please tell a friend about the show and share a link on social media. We are a small team and can use your help. You can find us online at theblackdoctorspodcast.com or visit us on Instagram. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters. Original music and audio editing by Dr. Stephen Bradley. Special thanks to creative director Dr. Nate Jones 